Well, good morning, New City, and thanks for joining us this Sunday. Real quick, as I begin, I just want to mention the prayer and fasting we're doing next week. We do this once a quarter at New City Church, where we encourage all of us to collectively go before the Lord with prayer and fasting. Now, next week, we're going to have these little handout cards that will give you exactly what to pray for and various ways to fast, so it's super simple. It's also the week leading up to Easter. Let me just say this. In Scripture, fasting always revolved around food, and especially, I think, us in the American West, where we have refrigerators and pantries and restaurants, we can very easily forget that we actually need God to move. And so I also want to say this, um, if you just fast and don't pray, that's called a diet. And some of you might be like, I need to go on a diet, which is great. But we also want to make time to actually seek the Lord and allow him to move in our life. And so next week, we'll tell you exactly how to do it. But just want to put that on your radar. Um, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who was at a conference. And uh, he was, there was this well-known, older, wiser pastor on stage. And he was telling me how they asked this pastor is in ministry, does studying for sermons and Bible studies, you know, the various things that we do, does that count as like your quiet time, like your personal devotional time? Or should it be separate? And in ministry, people ask this question, like, does it count? Or should you have your own devotional thing? Like, what, what actually matters? And so my friend was like saying, like, here's what I would have said if he was telling this. He's like, I was telling this other guy, here's what he's going to say. And this, this older, wiser pastor, simply from quoting from Psalm 2, simply said this, uh, let everyone work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And he was quoting from Psalm chapter 2, basically saying this, I'm not going to tell you what you should or should not do so that you can kind of check a box that you need to decide. What does it look like for you, if you're a pastor, to lovingly follow Jesus and making sure that it's a bedrock of what you're doing and not just learning information, but that might be different for different people. And I share that because today, as we continue through the book of Genesis, we're looking at this question this morning, and that is, how should God respond to sin? How should God respond to sin? What should he do with sin? Now, just to get us all on the same page, I want to give us a little bit of a definition so we're kind of on the same page here. Here's one way that you could define sin. Quite simply, it's putting it this way. Uh, Sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform with God's character or commands. Sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not uh, conform to God's character or commands. So if God is the creator, we are the creation. He's outside of creation. Uh, He defines what is good and evil, what is right, what is wrong as the creator of all things. And so uh, when we do not live up to his standard or do not behave or do things in a way that honor him or love people, that means we have sinned. We have not conformed rightly to our creator. And so the question for us is what should God do about it? Now, last week we looked at how does God deal with sinners? We talked about his grace and his compassion and mercy, but today we're talking about what should he do actually with sin itself, right? Should he only care about the really big bad sins, the really big mean evil people, or should he care about all of it, right? Should God only care about the sins that other people commit against you, or should he also care about your sins as well? What should God actually do with it? That's what we're looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, or a smartphone. Uh, You can go there. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those black ones in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. That would be our gift to you. And so how does God respond to sin? We're going to continue the story in Genesis. Now, last week, if you were here, we've been talking about the creation story, Adam and Eve, some of their children. Last week, we looked at Cain and the line of Cain and also the line of Seth. We are looking for, as it talks about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 
verse 15, the snake crushing seed. Who is going to be the one that's going to redeem us, redeem us from our present state? And so we're searching. We saw last week it's not going to come from the line of Cain. There was a lot of evil and wickedness there. And while there's a lot of evil and wickedness in the world, we ended last week with the line of Seth, which leads to Noah. And is Noah going to be the one that's going to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? Is he going to be the one that's going to redeem us? That's where we left off. And so we'll continue reading chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says this. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. So what you have happening here is these sons of God, they take. Now, this is the same phrase in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 where it talks about Adam and Eve seeing the fruit on the knowledge of the tree of good and bad as good. And so they, they wanted it, they desired it, so they took it. These sons of gods are doing the, same, what, doing the same thing. They see that these daughters are beautiful, and so they are taking them probably by force to be their wives. Now, there's been a lot of questions over the years of who these sons of God actually are. And so what I want to do, just try to do this quickly, is share with you the three main uh, views of who they could possibly be and, and, and show you why this matters as we continue to read Genesis. So the question is, who are these sons of God that are taking these women? Uh, one view is that these are the godly line of Seth, the godly men from the line of Seth or took women from the ungodly line of Cain. So there's a lot of evil and wickedness going on, but it talks about how some of the line of Seth, they actually are worshiping God and trying to follow him. And so is it this thing of like, if we were to use maybe modern language, you have believers taking unbelievers as their wives and even forcing them to do so. That could be one view. Uh, another view is that these are ancient kings or rulers. And the reason why this is a popular view is because in the ancient world, the kings or the rulers or even the people that are in charge of their tribes or however large they might be would often view themselves as sons of God or as chosen by God or as the intermediary between the gods and the people. They would often take multiple women. They would have multiple wives. They would have multiple concubines. Again, they would call themselves sons of God. And so you could have these rulers that were doing ungodly things, thinking themselves as God and taking multiple wives. Or the third view, which by the way is going to be the least popular in the American American Western culture today, and that, that is that these sons of God are angelic beings, that they are actually angels. Now, let me just say this. It doesn't actually matter uh, which view you take. Um, our opinions on stuff like this, why they aren't, aren't insignificant and why they you know, don't matter, it may, why they um, are not unimportant, I should say. They don't change things like your faithfulness or your salvation. And so regardless of what you think or don't think about these people, um, it doesn't really matter for our purposes today. Uh, but, but that said, here's what I want to do. For a second, I just want to press in on the third view. And the reason why is because for us in our culture today, we, auto, we are automatically automatically inclined to think it's supernatural is weird and untrue. If it's a supernatural answer, that, that probably can't be it. Now, again, I just would say, I think that's even our tendency as Christians. And again, it's because we're, we just live in the culture that we live in, that it's, it's easy for us to also discredit the supernatural. I would just remind us, however, uh, that we follow a God who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and resurrected from the dead. That seems pretty supernatural to me. And so this is not, a, you know, it, supernatural things can happen. And so uh, I also want to say this. It's also worth remembering um, that not only Jesus and who he, what he 
did supernatural, but actually when you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis from chapters 1 through 11, uh, you actually see the physical world and the spiritual world overlapping in a very unique way, or maybe even a strange way from our context, even differently, not just from how we might experience the world today, but even how we experience the rest of the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis seems to be different than the rest. So for example, you have an Adam and Eve who are in a garden. Uh, they, they meet with God in this garden. Even the Garden of Eden, if you were here, as we talked about, even the Garden of Eden itself was quite supernatural. Uh, you've got this, this serpent, supernatural spirit being in the form of a serpent talking to Adam and Eve, and that seems to be weird to us. Uh, you have Cain, who is so comfortable talking with God that when God asks him where his brother is, his response is simply, I don't know, am I, brother's, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, it didn't seem weird at all for Cain to be talking with God. Right, that's quite different than how we experience life today. And that's just what we've seen so far in Genesis. We'll see some more soft stuff with Noah and the chapters after that. There are some supernatural things going on that seem to be a little bit different. Now, the question then becomes, why would you hold the third view? There's four reasons. I'll do this just briefly because, again, this might impact how you understand Genesis. The first is that the sons of God, or the phrase that we have translated sons of God here, uh, is every time in the rest of the Old Testament, every time it has the the word translated sons of God, it's always referring to angelic beings. So there's three other references other than this one. And whenever they talk about sons of God it's th- or sons of God, it's always referring to angelic beings. Uh, the second reason, it was this was actually the dominant view of, Jer- of early Jewish scholars and the early church until the second or third century. Now, when I say early dominant view, I don't mean like the original readers. This is like maybe sometime after as reading became more developed and more people began to study and that sort of thing. There was thought that it was angelic beings. The third reason is that the New Testament might actually imply this view in in Jude verse 6 or in 2 Peter chapter 4. It talks about angels who left the heavenly realm, uh, did something that was very evil in God's sight, and that God is holding them in bondage uh, for now because of what they have done. Now, it doesn't say exactly what they did, but some people are argue it's what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 6. And last but not least, perhaps this is the most helpful, but this actually explains why uh, the violent conquests of Joshua and the Israelites into the promised land, there were a certain city, there were a few cities that before they entered into these cities, God says, wipe everybody out, kill everything. Now, this didn't happen all the time, but there was a few times that God said it, and it wasn't because they were being attacked or something bad was happening to the Israelites. This is where people understandably get uncomfortable with the Old Testament. Why would God do that? Um, However, it is worth knowing that the only select few cities where God commands Joshua to go in and wipe everyone out are the places that are described as having giants who are called either the Anakim or the Nephilim, which we'll see in a second, are described as the offspring of these sexual relations between these angelic beings or whoever these sons of God are and these women. Which would, if they are angelic beings, help explain why God says where the Anakim or the Nephilim are, you have to get rid of them all. You have to get rid of them all. It's also worth noting that these descendants were somehow bigger giants. There was something different about them, which would be harder to explain if these were simply normal rulers or other people like that. Now, again, there's other things you could argue for the other positions that I didn't explain here, but I just want us not to assume that the supernatural reason has to be wrong. And in fact, in my view is I think the supernatural reason actually helps explain some of the things like the conquest into the promised land better if they actually were a 
angelic beings. Now, regardless of who they were, it is apparent, however, that the sins that they are committing are part of the reason why God is going to send a flood. They are doing something so evil that they are propagating something so evil that it cannot continue. Cannot continue. So here's what God says, verse 3, what he says next. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, this could be in reference to the reducing of lifespans. If you were here last week, we talked about how human beings live so long and how we're supposed to understand that. Uh, It could be because you are so evil and so corrupt, you are now not going to live as long, which again, would make sense because think about, I mean, this is a cliche example, but we all can relate to it. Like imagine if someone like Hitler lived till they were 900 years old. If you have people who have power and who are evil, they could continue to propagate that power for a very long time. And of course, we know that wickedness and evil had spread everywhere. And God said, I'm not going to allow that continue. Or this could be saying that there's going to be 120 years until I send the flood. Now, personally, I'm much persuaded by the lifespan being shortened for other reasons we won't get into this morning, but that's likely what's going on. They're not going to live as long because they are so corrupt. Then it says this in verse four, if we keep reading. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore to them children. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. Right? So again, remember, when Genesis is being composed, uh, the Israelites were still wandering, about to enter into the promised land, where these descendants, these Nephilim, these Anakim, were still around. And they are legendary. They are renowned, not in the sense of like they didn't exist, but in the sense of like everybody has heard stories about them, that there's something different about these people. Now, I would also argue that it's very likely that the original readers and listeners of this text knew who these sons of God were. They probably knew exactly like what category they are that we don't know. Um, They knew which one was correct. But regardless, what I want to point out here, what we see happening as we're talking about how should God respond to sin, what we see right away is that sin requires a response. That God has to do something with it. When God seems that something is wrong, when something is not attuned to his character, he does something with the sin of Adam and Eve, with the sin of Cain. He has to respond, right? And if God were not to respond, if he were not to care, that would be quite strange. If God is actually loving and he has standards, then he has to respond when those standards are not being met. He has to do something. He has to do something. Now, for us, at least on a surface level, we probably don't like the idea of judgment as we're going to talk about, but, but he has to do something. And it, it kind of makes me think of um, last, you know, whenever you see uh, major things happening in the world today, like a couple years ago at the last royal wedding, which I know nothing about this stuff, but there was a very iconic picture where, you know, as they're proceeding down whatever the streets are to wherever they get married, who knows, somewhere, um, they had this, this iconic photo where there's like thousands of people and all of them have their phones out. All of them, except this sweet little old lady with glasses and she's hanging over the railing with all these people around her. She's got no phone and she's just smiling. And everyone's like, be in the moment, be like her, right? They're like, how these people respond are not right. Or a couple months ago, even if you don't care about the NBA, LeBron James broke the all-time scoring record. And there was this iconic photo going around, like the shot that he shot to break the scoring record. There's a shot where there's everyone in the shot in the stadium, they all have their phones out. 
And only one person, Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike, 85 years old, he's sitting under the basket. He's the only one that did not have their phone out. And what I found interesting was the next day on ESPN, everybody's blasting all these people. Live in the moment. You shouldn't do that, right? And I think all of us, we like, that's what you should do. You should live in the moment. But yet, everyone who's actually in the moment takes their phone out, which leads me to believe I probably would have taken out my phone as well. Like, I got to get some likes on the gram. So I got to do this. Right? So it's really easy for us to say what you should do when you're not actually in the moment. It's really easy for us to tell God what he should or should not do, but he has to do something. For him not to respond would mean that he does not care. For him not to respond, which means he would mean he does not love us enough to do anything about it. He has to do something with sin and evil. And so here's what it says, verse 5. Here's what he's going to do if we continue reading. When the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And I want to stop there in the middle of the sentence. What a verse. Evil all the time. Everything on their mind was terrible. And here's the thing. We all want justice, but I do think it's interesting. But then in times when the Old Testament where God brings justice, we think it's God is because God is angry and mean and vindictive. Like we want justice, God brings justice, but then we don't like it. But he has to do something. And in fact, I would argue, I would submit to you, I mentioned this last week, for us, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with this idea of judgment. However, I think that if we had like some sort of like recording of how people were living before the flood, when this weakness was everywhere, I think our uncomfortable, comfortable uncomfortableness would not be the flood. I think what would make us uncomfortable was the fact that God waited so long to do anything. In fact, I remember some of you might have seen the, the Noah movie that came out like 10-ish years ago. And I remember, I remember thinking going into it, they're going to depict like the people like they're bad, but they're probably not doing like that many bad things. And they're going to depict God as like, why would he do that? And I was very surprised watching the movie. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a ton of time, but they, when they were talking about how evil it was, it was like bad. Like the screen was dark and barbaric. People were like killing each other. Like it was actually bad. I think they actually got it right. And so God here responds to the complete rebellion of the physical and perhaps even spiritual world, that he has to bring justice. Again, if you were here last week, we talked about the name Methuselah, that God likely waited 969 years, that he gave people plenty of time to repent and turn back to him, but they didn't, and so he has to do something. Now, it's also worth noting, we've talked about this in Genesis, how Genesis is in some ways similar, in some ways very unique from other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, uh, that all of them mention people living a really long time, and then they all mention a flood. And what's also interesting about the Genesis account is why God actually sends the flood is different from all these other creation mythologies. In all these other creation accounts, God sends the flood either because of overpopulation of people or because they're tired of the unrest, protest, distress, and complaints of humans. That, they, that the gods originally created humans because they were tired of working. They wanted the humans to work the ground and offer them sacrifices. But now they're so tired of hearing them complain that they just want to wipe them out. But that is not at all why God sends the flood. It's not God's annoyance. It's not God's like dislike of humans, but it's because he has to do something with evil, that he, ha he cannot allow this to continue. And so one of the things we also see is that God is patient with our sin. Again, we talked about this last week, 969 years, even in evil and wickedness. He doesn't strike people down right away because he loves us. He sees us as valuable. Even in our brokenness, he allows time for us to come and perhaps turn to him. Now, typically, uh, typically we might think God is too patient when it doesn't concern us. 
Like, why wouldn't God do something in that situation? Again, this is a cliche example, but we're all familiar with it. Like, a legitimate question could be asked, why did God allow World War II to drag on so loud or even happen at all? Or the, U, the war in Ukraine just passed a year of, of going on. Like, why would God allow this? There's death and destruction on both sides. You give people conscripted into service who have no idea what they're doing. You have civilians losing their homes and their schools and all these things. Like, why would God allow this? That, hear me, that's a legitimate question that we do not have an answer to right now. But one of the things we do see in it is that from the very beginning, even in Genesis, you get a God who is patient and who is full of mercy and love. That he has to do something with it. But because he loves us so much, he is not quick. He is not quick-tempered that he wants to give us every opportunity to know him. And so here's what it says. Here's what he's going to do. He says he's going to, everything is evil all the time. And then verse 6, it says this. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Which is also, just like verse 5, verse 6, this is a powerful verse that God would regret. Now, there's typically, uh, you could describe regret in two different ways. So you can regret things that you wish had turned out different. You asked the girl on the date, she said no. You applied for the job, you tried to do this thing. Things that you, you didn't do anything wrong. It just, it didn't turn out how you wish, and so you regret it. Uh, there's also the type of regret where you know going into it, you shouldn't have done it. Right? When, it's, when it's midnight and you're hungry, you, drop, you, you jump in your car and you drive to Taco Bell for that fourth meal. Like, you know what's coming. Or my, my wife, her love language is Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And uh, she loves to get her medium iced coffee with caramel swirl and cream. And half the time we go to get that coffee, at least half the time, they mess it up. I don't know how. I'm not a barista. Christina says it's a very easy order to do. But half the time we go, they're going to mess it up. And she's all excited. She takes a sip, and she's like, they messed it up again. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what happens all the time, right? So it's like you might regret it, but you should have known that they're probably going to mess it up. There's two different types of regret. Now, for, for this verse, it's, it's a little bit difficult to translate here in Hebrew the word that we have for regret and really all of its meaning. Um, and some translations have the word sorry. Um, there, there's really a lot that could be explained here, but just really high level. What seems to be happening or what the text seems to be conveying is that God, as he is weighing the situation of what has unfolded with humanity, that he is grieved. He is deeply grieved because things are not as they should be and that there is no repentance for it. And so he's grieved because he has to correct it. He's grieved because he has to do something about it. He's grieved over the corrupt corruption, and he cannot allow it to go on forever. This doesn't seem to be a, I knew it was going to happen with humanity, and I wish I hadn't created them because I made a bad decision. It's not like he made a bad decision. He's grieved, or his regret is really deep grief and anguish over what he has to do because what of what has transpired. He has to do something. And so it says this in verse 8, if we continue reading. It says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so in all of the wickedness and all of the evil, we got one guy. 
We got one guy. Now, we don't even know about his family. Perhaps they also were holy and righteous like him, or perhaps they're just going to be saved because of their proximity to this man. But he is alone. Now, it's not necessarily saying that Noah here is sinless, but rather compared to everyone else who was around and alive at this time, he was distinguished. He was different. He actually cared about the Lord. And so maybe, again, the hope for us, maybe Noah is going to be this snake-crushing seed who is going to be, who's going to redeem us. Maybe he's the one that's going to set all things right. And it even says that he walked with God, which, of course, is an allusion to the Garden of Eden. And we'll see in a few chapters that his sons will also become important as the story progresses. Uh, but, but what I think one of the things we are meant to see as God is sh- showing us who Noah is and why he is choosing to redeem him is because sin is a choice. Part of God's grief here is not because things were going to automatically turn out this way, but because people have chosen to go their own way and they simply not care and there is no repentance for what they have done. As we talked about in Genesis chapter four, that sin is a croucher waiting to devour us, but sin is not a foregone conclusion. Sin is not something that has to happen. It is not true to think, well, there isn't much I can do about it, so it is what it is. I can't change it. It just is who I am, so it's going to be what it's going to be, I might as well live with it. That is not the biblical portrait of sin, that things can change, that things can be different. It kind of makes me think of, uh, there's a lot of things in my life, perhaps there's things in your life that you just think that you can never do. And perhaps it doesn't have to be like a sin thing, but like, I'm just, I don't have the skills, I can't figure it out. Uh, there's been a lot of things in my life that, that I was like, I'm just not going to figure it out. Uh, but a couple of years ago, however, things started to change. I started to try new things. And so I started woodworking. And, uh, and to this day, like I, I'm doing it now, it's very much a hobby. I'm selling things on Facebook. Facebook marketplace all the time. Everyone in Raleigh knows my address now. So if you want to rob me, you won't be the, probably the first one to do it. It's really safe, I'm sure. Um, but here's the thing. When I started woodworking, I didn't know anything. And I, like every time it said like a certain measurement, I would like, like five times I'm look, looking at it before I cut it. I'm like, oh, I need to move it like half a millimeter. Like I was so nervous, right? And now sometimes I look at a picture, I'll watch the YouTube video once without stopping it. And I'm like, I can do it. Like, I figured it out. Like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling some sort of way about it. Or like last year, I bought this Blackstone. It's a flat top griddle. And I started cooking. And I ain't never do I always say, add 30 seconds king on the microwave until this time. That's all I did. And, but when I started, it was like, you have to, you have to like measure ingredients. Like, if you're going to, if you're going to marinate something, whatever. And I'm like, so nervous about it. So it's like a tablespoon or a teaspoon. And I'm like, holding the measuring cup. And I'm like, eyeing it. Like, make sure it's like perfectly level before I dump it in. If I mess it up, I got to start all over. Right. And now I've started to get a little dangerous. Sometimes now I don't measure. It's like a pinch of salt. I take my salt and I'm like, okay, I got you. Right. I just like, I'm just going for it. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I'm like, I figured it out. I've taken some steps. I'm not the man who I used to be, right? It's been awesome. At least that's what I say. I don't know if you come over, you might think differently. Now, here's why I say this, that you can change. Now, it doesn't mean that the issue or the struggle or the weakness that you have, you will never be an issue for you again, or will never be a struggle for you again. But Jesus offers life and Jesus offers freedom, that he is offering us a way out. It is a choice. And because sin is a choice, God has to do something with it. If he's actually going to care, if he's actually going to be loving, if he's actually just, he has to do something with our decisions to do things that are not in line with his character. And so here's what God's going to do. It says this in verse 11, if we keep reading. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, 
I will put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Now, at this point, I think we got to point out the irony here, how this story became the cute kid story, right? It's like, yay, rainbows, butterflies, ark. And it's like really sin, death, and destruction. That's what it's about, right? That God takes our sins so seriously that he wiped out the whole world. And so let's go paint it on our kid's bedroom. You know, now I'm not knocking it. I get it. I'm just saying the next time your little daughter or a little son needs to take a bath, you should take their little ark. You should take the giraffe and you should just drown that thing. And then they're, when they're like, daddy, what do you do? And I'm like, this is what actually happened. Okay. Right here. Right. So that's maybe not what you should do, but you know, maybe not, but, but that's what's happening here. Right. That sin and destruction must be dealt with. God has to do something with it. Right, this story, Genesis chapter 6, shows us how God views evil and wickedness. That the righteous, good judge is right to bring judgment here. He is right to do it. What we see in this text is that God will judge sin. He will. He will, and he has to. He is justified to do so. But, but here's the irony of this, because I know this makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but the irony of our current cultural moment is that we want to remove God, act as he does not exist, or we act like God always agrees with us, that everything we think and we like and we do, God is okay with. Like the 20, 2023 American Western mind is what God had in mind all along. That's what we can think, right? And so what can happen is that either God's removed or God just happens to agree with us and everything, and he never challenges us. And at the same time, we then condemn anybody who gets in our way. I'm not saying like you personally, but I'm just saying our cultural milieu is like anyone who disagrees with us with anything, we condemn them. We cancel them. We say, get out of here. And then we, we use words like bigot or wrong side of history or ignorant or oppressive. Now, I'm not saying that you can't use some of those words at some point, like you should never say those things. But what's ironic or interesting to me is how quick we are to use those words and how sure we we seem to be right when we use them, right? They're the bigot, and I just know. They're on the wrong side of history, and I just know. They're oppressive, and I just know. We seem to be so confident in our own judgment of things. And if it's true, if we would at least gather or at least admit that we do not know everything, and if God exists, he does know everything, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-loving, then what is God supposed to do with sin? Is he really not supposed to care? Or is he only supposed to care about the person who cuts you off in traffic, but not you when you cut other people off in traffic? I know that's a like, is he only supposed to care when other people do things that you don't like, but when you don't, when you do something that you shouldn't do, it doesn't matter? Like, what is God supposed to do? Is he not supposed to care about evil? Is he not supposed to care about your suffering? Hear me, when you talk about, when you hear the judgment of God, he judges because he cares. If he did not care, he would not judge. If he did not care, it would not matter what you did. Judgment's coming because God actually cares. That's why. And so let's keep reading. Here's what God's going to do. Verse 14, it says this. He says this God says this to Noah. Uh, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. And then the next couple of verses, he's going to explain, you know, some dimensions of the ark, what it's supposed to look like. Just for uh, modern, modern terms, the ark was about 1.5 football fields long, right? So it's a massive structure, particularly in the ancient world. So he says, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you need to build. And then look down to verse 17 and says this. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. 
Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. In other words, this will be such a cataclysmic event that everything, everything will experience judgment. That sin will get what it actually deserves, which is judgment. Yet, in God's grace, he chooses Noah. He provides Noah a way to escape so that he does not also fall prey to us. Now, up until now in this story, uh, Noah is doing great. Uh, We will soon see, however, after they get off the ark, that Noah is going to have issues of his own. Uh, Noah, as we see, is not going to be the promised one, but his story does point us to the one who is, who can actually save us from the flood of judgment that we also deserve. And so there's this thing in, in biblical theology where you can look at some of the people in the Old Testament and you and they are what are called types of Christ. That they, they, they fail to the serpent crushing, they fail to the serpent, they also sin. But there's things about them that points us to Jesus. They are a shadow of the one to come who's, all, who's never going to fail and is going to do everything perfectly on our behalf. And so some of the ways that Noah is like a type of Christ is that you see in this story that Noah goes into a wooden ark to save his family, but Jesus goes onto a wooden cross to save sinners and make a family. Or in this story, God saw the sin of the world and rightly sins judgment, but he saves Noah. Yet when Jesus comes, God saw the sin of the world and judged Jesus in order to save the world. Or the ark of the storm went into God's wrath in order to save Noah and his family, but Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath in order to save us from judgment. This is why Jesus came. You want to know why Jesus came? Here's the question this morning. How should God respond to sin? Well, this is, this is the reality, that sin requires judgment. It requires it for God to be consistent with who he is. And so God has been patient. I think from our limited perspective, we might think he's been too patient, but eventually judgment must come. But the good news is that God in his, in his grace provides an ark of salvation, and that ark of that salvation for you and for me is Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that God came in the form of a man, lived a sinless life, died the death that we deserve, that Jesus took the punishment on our behalf so that we can escape judgment, so that we can receive the grace of mercy of God, and God can still be consistent with his character because Jesus takes the wrath, the sin, the judgment that we deserve on his shoulders. And so hear me, when you, when you hear this judgment, when you hear me talking about judgment, what you should not walk away with is that this is some fire and brimstone sermon that you better repent or else. That's not what's happening here. This is you get to receive mercy or else you and I will receive our just reward. That Jesus has come to save us from ourselves so that we can, we can accept and have something that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, that Jesus gave towards us. The gospel of Jesus is that he took our sin, our punishment, our, dispro- our, 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 our sin, our ugliness, our brokenness. He said, give it to me so that you can have life. This is why the last thing I'll read in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is giving a, a series of short parables about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And he says this in verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. 
that you find something so valuable, so precious, that nothing is worth it, nothing is greater than the salvation of Jesus and what he is offering you. Listen, if sin requires judgment, then something must be done. And this is why Jesus came. He didn't come to meet you halfway. He didn't come to say, hey, you've done a good enough job. Let me take it from here. He came to do all of it because we could never earn it on our own. And so listen, this is why next week we're celebrating baptism. People who are publicly declaring what God has done inwardly in them, that he has rescued them from the domain of the power of darkness and given them new life. And so I just want to say, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus or a brand new follower of Jesus, next week is the next step for you. If you have not been baptized, to get baptized. Baptism does not save you, but it shows other people that Jesus is Lord. And so if if you're interested in baptism, you can text NCC Baptism to 97,000 or check off your Connect card. I'd love to have those conversations with you. And for the rest of us, again, if you're coming to Second Service next week, just remember, be here by 1040 so that you can see the baptisms in the parking lot uh, so we can celebrate the goodness of God. Listen, our God came to redeem us, to save us from the judgment that we deserve. God judges because he cares, and he sent Jesus because he loves you. And that is who we worship.